doesn't seem possible that a child born in America to American parents would have any concern that she might not have all the paperwork available to her to lead a normal life. But for years of her life, Patricia Knightmeyer had a nagging concern in the back of her mind that one day she wouldn't be able to prove her identity. Her adoption happened without proper oversight or paperwork and left her in a state of limbo only some adoptees would understand. Find out how she was able to put her unsettled existence to rest and find an outlet for her adoption trauma, this time on Adoption Uncovered. Well, I am really glad that you're here to talk to me today. So if you would start with your name and give us sort of a summary of your story of how you're connected to adoption. Hi, Charlene. I'm really excited to be here with you too. Um, my name is Patricia Knightmeyer. I am a uh, adoptee, although I don't consider myself, I consider myself more of a link, relinquishy than adoptee because I was never legally adopted. Um, I consider myself a black market baby. I was sold along a curb in 1970 by a shady attorney who later blackmailed my parents um, with the threat of taking me away. Uh, and they never did receive a legal um, adoption, any, any adoption papers or a legal birth certificate. So ultimately, I was raised the majority of my life uh, with no legal identity or paperwork that attached me to anyone. Um, and I went to private school because I um, didn't have any form of identity. My adoptive parents didn't go to the police because they were fearful of uh, having me taken away. This blackmail continued for probably the first two years of my life. And ultimately they paid about $30,000 before they just realized they had no more to pay. And so rather than go to the police, they just decided to walk away and hope that the attorney would leave them alone, uh, which he did. Um, but I think that that, um, that was very traumatizing for them. And ultimately, I think that that led to some difficult problems in my household. Uh, my mother drank a lot. Uh, my father had an eating disorder. At his greatest, he weighed about 700 pounds. And um, I really began to grew up feeling like a caretaker for them. And I think that somehow or another, I always had a sense that whatever situation I was in, it wasn't safe. And I think that they maybe subconsciously communicated that to me in certain ways. Um, but I went to private school because my parents didn't have any form of paperwork for, for me. And um, wasn't until that, I, until I needed a social security card to get work in the theater that they came to me and explained to me they never received my birth certificate and the backstory on the attorney. And um, ultimately that caused a lot of identity issues, uh, obviously uh, trust issues. And that came at you know, 12, 13 years old when I was really beginning to try to form an identity. And um, that sort of put me on a spiral toward um, just that, that typical, what we hear about that like rebellious adoptee um, kind of persona and I ultimately ended up becoming a, a birth mother, myself, well, not a birth mother, a, a single mother, um, an unwed mother at 18, 
uh, facing the decision of, you know, will I become a birth mother? Will I relinquish my child or will I raise my child on my own? Uh, and ultimately I, I figured out that I couldn't live in a world without my, without my knowing who my birth mother was, but also having a child out there and being a birth mother at the same time. So I chose to keep my child. Um, and so that's sort of my story in a nutshell. There, there's a lot of other layers to it, <laughs> but that's, that's sort of where I came at into the world of, uh, of, you know, my, my experience as an adoptee up until the time I was about 30. When Patricia started to search for her birth family, there was more at stake than just discovering her genetic past. Her birth family became the key to having real documentation, but it wasn't an easy fix. I lost my adoptive father at, because he was so obese. Uh, I, he died when I was 25. And then I took care of my mother uh, until uh, she died at 70 when I would have been 40-ish. And um, it was losing her that made me really, I mean, all along I'd been wanting to try to solve this mystery and figure out was I a stolen baby? Why wasn't there paperwork involved? What's going to happen if I lose like the one fake birth certificate piece of paper that I have, you know, um, I got my passport before 9-11, so I didn't need a long form, but, you know, I clung to my passport too, because I thought if I lose my passport, what am I going to do? So all of that inspired me to go out and search for my um, natural parents. And uh, I did eventually find my natural mother and she led me to my uh natural birth father who didn't know anything about me. And um, from there, he was able to help me uh, obtain a true and legal birth certificate uh, through the court system with uh, both rec both DNA tests that we did um, in hand and basically testified to the fact that he was with my birth mother only once on the night of her 20th birthday. And the record of that was in the Texas birth records, which was just her name and a baby girl, um, that I had to be that child based on, you know, this, you know, his, his, the proof of the DNA and, and the, how the dates lined up with uh, other documents that I had to, you know, basically prove my age. So that's the yeah. story. <laughs> well, it's crazy because it's not really something that I would think would happen in America that people have to worry about having the correct paperwork and that type of thing. That is just a unique set of stresses to have to grow up under. Yeah, I, I think adoptees understand it a little better than the general public does. The general public, it blows their mind to say, what do you mean you didn't have a birth certificate that was true and legal and accurate? And um the birth certificate that I did end up getting when I was 12, when I needed that social security card was called a uh, delayed certificate of birth. And that's different than amended. Most, most adoptees, they, their, their adoptive parents, you know, give them, or they end up finding an amended certificate of birth, which means they, their original birth certificate was amended, you know, to reflect untruthfully who the new parents are. Um, but with mine, my adoptive father didn't have any birth certificate to or record to amend. So they went to court. He went to the state with uh, paperwork like from a, a sworn affidavit and then a, a life insurance paperwork that had been taken out when I first 
was brought home and said, um, we just lost her birth certificate. Ne uh, birth certificate was never issued. They can't find the record. So he stood before them and said, you know, this, these are, this is my child with no mention of adoption. And so I was, a delayed certificate of birth was created. But when I went back and tried to find that delayed certificate of birth in the Texas birth records, uh, they could never find it. Uh, it had a handwritten number at the top. So there's a big part of me that still wonders, like, was it an action, you know, did he really get it from the state? Uh, you know, could it have been a falsified document? I, I really don't know, but I could never get a, a replacement for that. So knowing that if I ever lost that, which eventually I did, and this passport that I was carrying around with me and, and making sure that I always renewed on time, um, if I lost those two things, then I really thought I was going to be in a pickle because I really had no way to prove I was a citizen of the United States or that I was born here or that my name belonged on that record. And then uh, a few years after I actually found both my birth parents and found my birth father, we didn't run right off and, and fix that problem. Um, I know we were very involved in the throes of reunion at that point. And it just didn't, it wasn't, it was sort of like, well, I've lived this long, you know, yes, we need to take care of that, but, you know, we don't necessarily have to do it right now. And I think part of why I put that off was because I knew that um, if I did that, I would be removing my adoptive parents' names off of any, even though it wasn't a true record, it was like I would be wiping them off, my relationship with them off the face of the earth. And emotionally knowing that like history was never going to show that these are the people who loved me and raised me and shaped me, um, that was very hard for me to, so it felt like divorcing them in this weird way. And the new, you know, having a document that says my birth mother and my birth father were my parents and also not saying, still not saying, oh, by the way, and this child was adopted. Um, again, that record just didn't seem like it was the true record of my life either. Uh, so I think emotionally it was very hard for me. And I had moved into a house that he had set aside for me to work on writing my book. And within two months, that whole little house with all my belongings in it burned down. And it was that, that birth certificate and my original, the one I've been carrying around with me my whole life and my passport both burned. And so at that point it was sort of like, well, now we really have to deal with this. Um, and oh, well, what I was saying a minute ago was that I, I knew that he was going to want me to put his last name on my birth certificate. I've added Knight to my name. So Patricia Knightmeyer, the Knight is my birth father's last name. And I added that, but it's not a legal addition. It's just what I've added as a, you know, I go by. Um, but I still, if I couldn't have my adoptive parents on this new birth certificate, I wanted to keep their name, my, my, the, the name I grew up with at least. So the new birth certificate that was created when my birth father went to court and testified, you know, to this fact, it still says Patricia Ann Meyer on it, which was my adoptive last name. In retrospect, I really wish I had made it say Patricia Knightmeyer because that's what I go with now. But at the time, even that was a little too hard for me. But, um, when I, going back to when I, we had that fire, I had just recently renewed that passport 
And when I went after the fire happened, I went in and I started digging in the in the ashes, thinking I didn't know if he if he alone could fix this problem. I didn't know how much we would need. And I dug up half the passport and the half of the passport that I dug up still had the numbers on it. And if you had renewed your passport within just a few months, there was a loophole that said you could send back the damaged part without having to send in your birth certificate since they already just got it on file and you could get a replacement one. And so that's what I did. And so I was able to get that replacement passport, which I was then able to use to get a replacement driver's license. And then I carried on for the next six months to a year until he actually got me a true and legal birth certificate. But I tell you, I'm still been renewing that passport because I'm still very concerned that if I tried to, if that passport lapsed and I tried to send in any kind of new birth certificate that had completely different names on it, I don't know what the, I don't know what kind of, you know, massive tangle of red tape I'd get, get into if I encountered that. So, so these things, when people think that, oh, you know, adoption is, you know, there's not, it's not, you know, it's straightforward and it's done legally and beside all the emotional aspects of being an adoptee and what comes with that, there's a lot of technical life situations that happens. And it's not just my life. Um, it's not just one, you know, story. There's many, many of these stories. As a matter of fact, shortly after finding my birth father, I had a first cousin find me through Ancestry DNA. And she was looking for her biological mother who ended up being my biological aunt, because it turns out that my birth mother and her birth mother were sisters. And this attorney that botched up my adoption uh, was the same attorney that her, that my, our, our maternal grandmother had used for the eldest daughter's um, adoption. She as well did not have a birth certificate and did not have any record of an adoption. And so she uh, discovered the problems that she had when she applied for a passport and it didn't go through. Um, and so she ended up working with her state representative to sort out the problem, but it took her years. And uh, so there, I guess there was more than one avenue of, when, when, when she found me, she also found that her maternal that her, her birth mother and her birth father had, had already passed. So there wasn't any way of using them or their DNA to get their, you know, to get that fixed the way I did. So she had to go a different route. Patricia wonders whether the high price tag that comes with some adoptions might encourage families to adopt in the way that her parents did, rather than to go through appropriate channels. Well, that, it, yeah, it's crazy to think about that when we think about adoption, we think, okay, you, you do all this paperwork, you transfer over, but that has not always been the case. And I feel like hopefully we are doing better at that these days, but I'm, I'm not entirely confident that's, that's true either. Yeah. So. When I, I, I wrote, I've written a book that I'm trying to publish right now. I'm looking for an agent um, about this and it's, in a, in a line that I write when I'm trying to, in my query letter, I talk about when maternal desperation meets need and greed, um, that it's, you know, that it's a can of worms just waiting to be opened because there are, you know, the system is set up for it 
to, to their proper channels to go through and many people do. But, um, and I don't know how much, like you said, it's changed since 1969, 70, when my adoptive parents were looking, but I know that they didn't have the money to adopt. Um, they were a biracial couple. I think that that had my father, again, like I told you, was well on his way toward obesity. He was already in his thirties, you know, approaching 400 pounds. And I think that on, you know, visually and on paper, they just did not fit uh, the kind of profile that back then, especially people were saying, mm, you know, you don't fit that perfect family model. And so I think they went around the system because they had been denied by a lot of adoption agencies because they weren't that like perfect, perfect, you know, June Cleaver, white, rich family that of the time that was so sought after by these agencies and birth mothers. I think that with with that, to, in today's society, there are still going to be adoptive parents who really want a child and cannot afford one. And there are going to be young people, uh, in my opinion, especially in light of the recent overture turning of Robert B. Wade, there's going to be a lot of unwed mothers who are looking for families for their children. And um, they might not always have access to the kinds of systems or there might still be levels of secrecy that that they want to you know go through where there that just opens more doors for more more babies to get placed without going through the proper channels and you know i'm the first one to say that being wealthy does not have anything to do with whether you're going to be placed into a uh a safe, healthy home, by no means is that the equivalent. But unfortunately, you have to have, I mean, what are they saying? The average adoption now costs around $80,000. I mean, there, there's many, many beautiful people with loving homes that that want to adopt and would make wonderful homes for these children who don't have the ability to go that route. And I think that there's also a lot of attorneys who have figured out how to in the past how to pocket that money and you know my my adoptive mother I mean sorry my birth mother said that she never saw a dime of any of that money she wasn't given a penny and the attorney was telling <clears throat> was telling my adoptive parents that her hospital bills were being paid that her apartment was being paid that you know she needed a car she needed food uh, but because they weren't allowed to talk to each other or have any you know visibility in that they had no idea where that money was going. So um, there's a there's I think that the same abuses that happened in the 60s and 70s can are most likely still happening today. We just won't hear about it for for many years to come. And and again, there are better systems in place, but I still think they could be even better than they are now, especially when there's any kind of profit involved. Um, there really shouldn't be any profit in in finding children that need homes homes. I think it is very common that when you get money involved and like thousands of dollars involved, that there's definitely room for things to go south and that, yeah, we probably need to find a better way so that people aren't able to profit from this. But yet these these children who actually need homes can get them or that they're able to actually stay in the homes that they're born into either way. It seems like there's definitely some holes that we need to fix. 
One thing that helped Patricia process the trauma of her adoptive experience was writing. From when she was young, expressing her feelings and words was a part of her life. I know you've been through a lot emotionally and everything, and, and, and you've said one way that you has helped you process that is through writing. So I would love to hear you talk about that and how, how writing has come into your life and how that has connected you with adoption. Oh, well, yeah. You know, I, I've always loved to write. Um, and when I met my birth mother, I learned that my grandmother wrote in her journal. She was an English teacher and she wrote in her journal every day. And so, you know, I, I do definitely, I love that aspect of knowing that, you know, some of it is, is nature and some of it's nurture. My adoptive mother always encouraged me to write. She was more of a left brain person, but she would sit and listen. And she read to me every day too. And that inspired my love of, of story. The very first story I ever wrote at nine years old was called Lost in the Woods. And it was about two children whose parents went off to go hunt, who lived in the woods with their parents, a little boy and a little girl. And they're one of the, the, well, the parents, one of the parents went out and went missing and the other parent went out, the, the wife later went out to look for the husband and she didn't come back either. So suddenly you've got these two children in the woods in this house by themselves and they're trying to figure out how to take care of themselves by themselves. And a rich uncle shows up and says that um, they, their parents have been killed that they, and that they just need to come along with him to get their inheritance. And then as they venture onto the woods with them, they realize that uh, he's next in line past them for the inheritance. And so he wants to kill them. And so instead they kill him um, so that because, to save their, to save themselves. Um, and then they decide they, they don't want the inheritance and they go back to live by themselves in the woods. Now, the reason I tell you that whole crazy nine-year-old story is that that just shows that at nine years old, I was already dealing with trauma and abandonment and trust and trust in the adults and trust in the people who are supposed to be looking after you and taking care of you. And so there's, um, when you write, there's a part of your brain that is going to find the, the things that you're still struggling with, the, the themes in your life that are um, gnawing at you. And then it comes out on the page and it came out as, as early as nine years old. And then by the time I was 12, I wrote a poem for my um, birth mother. Um, and I read that to my adoptive mother. And um, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll tell it to you. Um, I was born into the world beside you. You had the strength to give me life, hoping I would have the world. Your choice was only right. For a while we were together. The time soon came we had to part. Thoughts of you lie always deep inside my heart. I don't care if you are young. I don't care if you are old. I don't care if you are poor or have pockets full of gold. You had the choice to give me life. I only wish to walk at least once by your side. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so I wrote that at 12. Um, and when I met my birth mother, I I, I read that, I, I re recited that to her probably in the first 15 minutes of, of meeting her. Um, but since then, you know, throughout my life and while I was in reunion, I, I journaled about every step of the way. I journaled about it. And so once I had found my birth parents and gone through this journey of uncovering what really happened that day and, and how it was that I came into the hands of this attorney and 
he truly was a bad attorney and that my adoptive parents weren't feeding me some line of bull that, you know, maybe they just hadn't held up their end of the bargain. You know, there were a lot of, I solved a lot of mysteries about my life. And then I was able to find my birth mother and birth father with absolutely no uh, birth certificate, birth records, name. I didn't even know my own birth date. Um, and so having done that, I felt like I really had a story to tell. So I wrote a, a, a memoir about that. And at first it was just a big jumble of nothing but a bunch of diary entries and things like that. And it, it took me um, probably two years to write my first draft without, and I did it without any kind of understanding of what a, the true core elements of a memoir are. I got a journalism degree from the University of Texas. And so I sort of thought, well, you know, I write, I, I write and I've written magazine articles and newspaper articles and corporate communications. And I'll tell you, none of that means you know how to write a memoir. I figured that out the hard way. So uh, with my very crappy first draft, I went to a writing retreat in Costa Rica. And when I got there, the, the woman who led the retreat was a, uh, she had an MFA and she was an, an, a developmental editor. She was also an adoptive mom. And I thought, well, you know, when, when the, when the universe is talking to you, you better listen. So, so I hired her uh, to work with me and she worked with me all through COVID on, and she really taught me the basics of how you uh, build a story and that a, a memoir needs to read like a novel and there needs to be suspense and it's not an autobiography. You, you don't put every single detail of your life in it. You, you need to look at the formative moments that uh, shaped you and the, the arc of your narrative and, and how you got from point A to B and what those experiences taught you about yourself along the way. And hopefully those experiences are, are the same experiences that your reader is going to be able to take away and carry into their life and learn something about. So I did a lot of teasing out um, a lot of the sentimental stuff. It's still important to write those things because you do process your feelings while you're writing. Um, and writing, it's not always, it's rarely for other people. Initially, it's for yourself. And then other people get to benefit from it. So when people say, you know, figure out what you're going to write and figure out what's sentimental, I say, write whatever is on your heart and then tease out what belongs in the book and what might belong in, you know, your version of the book that you wrote for yourself. Uh, or maybe it belongs in, in a different collection of essays about your life. But just write what's on your heart. And that's what I did. And in doing that, um, you know, I really feel like I healed a lot of trauma. There were times when my editor came back and she read over an entry that I made about, it was basically the climax of the book when my adoptive parents at 13 sit me down and tell me about this attorney and how they don't know my birthday and never got my birth certificate. And I initially gave it two paragraphs and my editor came back and said, what? This is, you know, this is an entire chapter. It's, it's the, it's the uh, climax of your, you know, it's one of the first climaxes in your book. It's going to set the course for, you know, the entire mystery you're going to solve down your, down the road. How could you just give this two paragraphs? And I was like, oh, you're right. I don't know why I did that. And then when I sat down to actually write that scene out and not just tell it, but show it and show what happened that day. Uh, I had to put myself in that kitchen. I had to look at the expression on my parents' faces. I had to remember the the twisting in my gut and how I slammed the door and, you know, and and how I sobbed in my room after. 
And I sobbed the entire time I was writing that scene because my psyche did not want to go back to that moment and deal with how much of an impact it had on my identity and my my foundation and my my trust in in my parents at the time it was incredibly traumatic and i didn't want to go there but then once i did and i and i wrote it out um, you know that was a very healing process you, you kind of there's a saying you have to feel to heal and uh, a lot of the times we we don't want to really really we can remember we can analyze i've been in sit in my therapist's office and just these are the facts and this is what happened and da 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 but until you get to really how it made you feel um that's where you start making progress and i think that when you start writing a memoir if you're going to write a good one you have to examine how did that make me feel and how did it change me and and that's where your reader can really connect with you is when you really get connected to your own feelings and your own metamorphosis and can bring them along with you on that journey. And it's hard, it's very hard to um, do sometimes. And you you start, you sort of, you, you begin to see, oh, this is this, this is, these are the parts that I haven't fully examined yet. And I think that's where, if you want to write a memoir, it's a, it's a great place to start because you will figure out what parts of you, you think you have healed versus what parts you actually have. Being an adoptee is hard enough, but Patricia's story reminds us that lacking knowledge about their origins can have a deeper consequence than we might think for adoptees. Find out more about Patricia's stories on my website, adoptionuncovered.com. And thank you.